You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. Uh, chapter 9, but, uh, you know, when it was found out that Josh was sick uh, today, elders decided, well, since we're having a fellowship, we'll get the guy who preaches the shortest. <laughs> oh, uh, but, uh, you know, I was, I, I was preaching at a church in Arkansas uh, one time. And we went to Sunday school, and there was a guy there who kept an eye on me the entire Sunday school, and every time my coffee cup got empty, he'd fill it back up. And I said, oh, well, are you? so I finally said, I said, are you, are you being nice? Are you trying to make sure the sermon is so, short? And he, and, he, and he didn't give me an answer. So, But this passage uh, this morning is in uh, Luke chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 46 through 56. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing that the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name and receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is at least among you all is, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for, you, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was so set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on, they went on to another village. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, Father, for this opportunity to meet. Uh, together as a church body, uh, Father, and Lord, I uh, pray that we can encourage each other, Father, and uh, build each other up in you, Father, realizing, Lord, that all our source of everything that we have is from you, and that is nothing from ourselves that is great, Father, all the glory and the greatness belongs to you, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At first blush, it may appear that these uh, three narratives are just unrelated things that Luke put in here. Uh, They seem like three random stories, Uh, but if we take a closer look, we can find at least one common thread that connects, connects them all. Now, if you read the outline, it's no secret what this thread is, and that thread is pride. Now, speaking of secrets, 
Pride can sometimes can be a secret sin. Now, if you'll bear with me, let me explain that. And by secret, I don't mean uh, hush, hush, no, don't tell anybody. I mean, we, might, we may not even realize ourselves that we are committing this sin of pride because it may be disguised as something else. Pride can disguise, disguise itself as, as confidence, maturity, uh, knowledge, and other things I'm sure I haven't thought of. And that's what I like to talk about this morning, how we have a propensity for pride. It's, it is easy to spot many sins in our lives. Lying, cheating, uh, stealing, lusting, murder, uh, adultery, gluttony, and so on. We know instantly when we commit those sins. And sometimes, in fact, those aren't spur-of-the-moment sins, but sometimes we, we even plan ahead to commit them. You know, we may try to justify them, but we know that they are wrong. Uh, pride, though, seems to kind of be a, its own animal in, in uh, some ways. Uh, there are times when pride is not seen as a bad thing. Your child makes the honor roll. Your spouse gets a college degree despite family and work commitment. You take pride in your job. Your favorite sports team wins a championship. Uh, you take pride in your country. And, you know, and uh, when you walk into the newspaper office down here in, in Comanche, you open door, the first thing that you see are my awards on the wall as soon as you walk in. And, in fact, I'll be next Saturday night, I'll be going to get some more awards. I'm going to put them right up there next to the those that are already there. But, uh, you know, so, you know, so it's tough sometimes, you know, to figure out where that line may be. You know, um, some pride, though, especially, especially spiritual pride, it seems, can cause us to sin without even realizing it. And it can be extremely harmful to our walk and our witness, and most importantly, it is highly offensive to God. Uh, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 tells us there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination. Number one on the list is haughty eyes. Haughty in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is defined as blatantly and disdainfully proud. So haughty eyes would be people who look down on others. You know, as Bert read in Isaiah this morning, God looks for those with, who are humble and contrite and trembles at His word. You know, contrite means to express uh, remorse or guilt, uh, of guilt or sin that leads to repentance. And I do want to make one thing perfectly clear before I continue on this morning. You know, and even though it may sound like it at times, the point of this passage this morning is not to pick on the disciples. Rather, it is to remind ourselves that these men who would lay the foundation for the church who deserve our utmost respect had an issue with pride and they were in the presence 
of Jesus. How much more should we watch ourselves not to fall into the trap of pride? We must constantly and consciously be, be humble because pride is always lurking. Now we look this morning at, we begin to look at the passage this morning. First thing we know is that pride puffs up. You know, the, the, the pride in this first passage is easy to spot. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is at least among you all is the one who is great. The disciples were arguing amongst themselves who among them was uh, the greatest, you know, and I, I am curious about how much time had passed in this chapter uh, from from earlier in this chapter. Uh, the gospel writers are not always big on chronological order. Now they had Jesus's ministry beginning of, uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry, and they had his uh, death and resurrection, but a lot of stuff in the middle could be mixed up. And, uh, you know, and that may have something to do with the style of, of writing back then. It may have to do with subject matter, but for whatever reason, it, they didn't always line up chronologically with uh, each other. You know, you take, for example, of, of Jesus calming the storm. You're familiar, I'm sure most of us are all familiar with that. Uh, the, the, Jesus and disciples get in a boat to go across the other side, the storm comes up. Jesus is asleep uh, in the boat, and uh, the disciples get scared. They come, they run, come and run and uh, get Jesus, and he calms the storm, and, and uh, he uh, rebukes them. Now, uh, you know, we have, you know, but, you know, in the gospel um, of Matthew, Matthew is not called until after this event happens. In Mark, Jesus has already called all 12 disciples before this has happened. So was Matthew on the boat or not? You know, uh, so we may or may not know. But, you know, but I say all this because earlier in Luke chapter 9 and verses 18 through 20, we have the story of Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. Now, Luke does not go into as much detail as Matthew does. And normally I don't like switching back and forth between gospel. I think it's important in this case. If you still have your Bibles open, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Uh, it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so Jesus pretty much straight up says, you know, Peter is, you know, after I'm gone, Peter here, he, he's, the, he's probably going to be the leader of this group here. And, but here, just a short time later, they're already arguing about which of them is the greatest and, I mean, the, all three of these, Peter, James, and John, were at the transfiguration, so that might have had something to do with it. But, um, you know, but they're, you know, they're, uh, so Jesus seems to say, you know, this Peter is going to be, you know, the main one after I am gone. And, you know, so they didn't have, James and John didn't even have the ammunition of Peter denying Christ three times yet if they wanted to use that against him, about who, which one was the greatest. And, uh, you know, and so despite what Jesus said earlier, they did not respect Peter's leadership. And so Jesus senses what is going on, so he grabs the nearest kid and sets the child in front of them and sets him straight on something for the upteenth time in his ministry. He tells them, unless they are like a child and humble themselves, that is what is the greatest. True greatness is service, not control. It is interesting to note that Jesus says, in my name, in verse 48. He is reminding the disciples who this is really all about. It is not about them, it is about Christ. And, and so whatever... He is the Lord, not them. And so whatever we do in His service, we do it by His character, His power, and His provision, and in His name. Humility is not just a good character trait to have. It is commanded. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5 through 5 tell us, uh, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is being revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not to shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here we have Peter. Let's remember whose, whose book we're reading here. Here we have Peter, who plays a major, major role in the main passage that we've read this morning in Luke about with the issue of pride, and he's talking about humility. Notice he gives, he gives specific instructions to the elders. 
He gives specific instructions uh, to the to the non-elders, but he tells them all, each and every one, to be humble. Regardless of where each and every one of us are in our walk, whether as a spiritual infant or a spiritually mature Christian, humility always plays a part. When God saves us, pride is overcome. It has been, pride has been severely wounded, but it is not giving up without a fight. And that is where the sanctification comes in. Uh, the process of becoming more like Jesus is sanctification. John MacArthur describes sanctifi sanctification as the triumph over remaining pride. He says, that's how you can measure your, your spiritual development. By the measure of, your, of triumph, uh, your, your humility has over your natural pride. Humility comes very, very hard. In fact, it can be come. It, it can't come apparently just through the teaching of Scripture. You can have lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson on humility, but that's not enough. Look what happens in in chapter uh, Luke chapter twenty two verse twenty four. Okay, now several months have passed between chapter nine. And verse 24, we know that because uh, right at the end of chapter 9, Jesus has set his face to go toward Jerusalem. Now they are in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die. And so they, and they had just finished the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. And what happens after she says that in uh, verse uh, 24? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, that The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and a leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may be eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus responds the same way in chapter 24 that he did in chapter 9 by telling them again that the greatest one among them is the one who humbles themselves. And, you know, they are just a couple of days away from Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial and the rest of them scattering all out into uh, the wind. All of a sudden, who is the greatest is not a topic of discussion. So Mark Arthur goes on to say, Well, if, if it's not the teaching that defeats pride, what is it? 
the combination of the teaching and the experiences that the Lord brings into your life. James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because trials have a perfecting work. Peter knew this from personal experience as evidence in 1 Peter, again, it's 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 10. After you have suffered a while, the Lord make you perfect. Peter knew his own maturing, his own sanctification was not just related to information. It was related to being crushed to suffering. So the process, so in the process of sanctification, it takes the Word of God working and refining and the working of God as He brings trials into our lives in order to break our pride. This is a good case study of our attitude to insiders, to those within our own fellowship, those within the church. These next two uh, stories here instruct us about our attitude towards those who are not in our fellowship, who are not in our church, and uh, it shows regardless of who we might be dealing with in whatever capacity, pride can still be a problem. Uh, here is next, uh, going back to the original text, in Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 49, we see that pride pouts. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So that's so this starts off with an interesting with interesting wording. Did what happened in verse 49 and 50 happen right after verses 46 through 48? John answered, as one who was part of the argument of who was the, gr the greatest, was he trying to change the subject? When you look at it, though, it is still the same problem or sin. A pride is just in a different context. Here in these two verses is a lesson for churches. John mentions someone not in the group is carrying out the same work they are, but he is not part of their group. Jesus rebukes him and tells him to leave the man alone for one who is not, who is not against you is for you. You know, it is so easy now, especially with social media, to attack those who do not think like you. Those that do things a little differently than you must be mocked and, you know, tend to be the mindset. Now, I'm not talking about calling out those who preach a false gospel or a, or a prosperity gospel or, or preach heresy, preach heresy, they deserve to be called out. But we must be careful not to do the same to those who are sincerely striving to do uh, the Lord's work. And, you know, and we can do that without, you know, and to work with those without having to compromise our own spirit, uh, 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 our own beliefs. And one of the things that attracted me and my family to this church about nine years ago was the way it conducts its, its, church, its church services. You know, it's, you know, it's exactly what we thought a church service, a worship service should be. No frills, just solid biblical preaching and worship for the whole family. And this particular 
part of this morning's text was particularly uh, convicting for me. You know, I, you know, I, I like to. I've had to really try, learn how to try to rein myself in against those who don't necessarily believe the things exactly uh, like I do, or things, or do things exactly like I do. You know, we need to be careful that we aren't judging. Uh, you, know, uh, you know. Make sure that we are judging with a righteous judgment and not judging in a wrong type of judgment. That, you know, um, that we aren't like the disciples were in this case of being jealous of others involved in the in a ministry that's not our ministry. It's an important principle in our relationship with other churches, even though it is by no means a blank check of acceptance. When I was in college, I had a good friend who the Lord used in a major way to help me in my spiritual growth. And this friend gave me godly counsel when I struggled with the angst of being a young adult. Yet after college, he eventually went to seminary and started a church. He started his church by holding a small Bible study in homes. Less than seven years later from that first meeting as a small group in small homes, they had a grand opening of a 25,000 square foot church where 1,500 people attended the first service. It grew into a mega church that today has three campuses. I love my friend. He is one of the best forward thinkers I have ever known. He has goals and visions for what he wants to accomplish five and ten years down the road, and I envy him for that. It's hard for me to look past the end of next week. But it would be difficult, if not impossible, for me in good conscience to be a member of his church. Why? Because of the way they Worship, they conduct their worship services. They have a rock and roll praise team with the strobe lights. They do things like host sports camps for kids in the summer and bring in well-known college and professional athletes and coaches to participate. They have special days like Jersey Day where everyone is encouraged to wear their, 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 the jersey of their favorite sports team uh, to church. Uh, they show clips from famous movies as part of sermon illustrations. Um, they do Easter egg drops from helicopters. Uh, the best I can tell, he preaches from one series to the next and instead of preaching through books of the Bible. But if someone were to tell me that he's not saved because of the way that the church, the way his church does things, well, those are fighting words to me. I would doubt my own salvation before I would doubt his, and I don't doubt mine. I've read their beliefs and I agree with many of them and those I don't, I would, I would consider secondary issues. This is not some great call for, ecumenic, uh, for ecumenicalism. In fact, I'm not a fan of it myself, but some unity wouldn't hurt. You know, I, I was not saved in a Reformed church, but I'm Reformed now. I once joined a church because they had a lot of different church programs available. Now I detest the thought of a lot of programs. Uh, I mean, I mean, I was involved in performing, you know, in church skits that are related to 
the sermon topics. You know, things I would never consider to do today. We need to be careful to we need to be careful not to pull a muscle trying to pat ourselves on the back because we're not like those other churches. When those other churches have the same goals we do, even if their way of doing it seems misguided to us. If God needed churches to be perfect in order to use them, then we'd all be in trouble. You, can, you can't throw a bunch of imperfect people into a box, shake them up, and expect perfection to come out. It just doesn't happen that way. I'm reminded of a saying I heard years ago, you will never find a perfect church, and if by chance you do, don't join, join it because you would just mess everything up. Now, if my friend came to me and said, Todd, you were once pastor of a small, struggling church of a couple dozen people for three years. What advice would you have for me who leads a church of thousands that started from scratch? I would boldly and lovingly tell him, lose a light show, turn up the sanctuary lights where it doesn't look like a movie theater, tone down the rock show, do expository preaching, and see how many of, the, of, of those same people still show up. And I really don't see him doing that, though. But finally, we see the disciples thinking highly of themselves for the third, for the third straight time in verses 51 through 56. And I call this pride passes over. Let's go ahead and read that. Verses 51, starting verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. <clears throat> when his disciple James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And what I mean by pride passes over is that a lot of times we want to overlook or bypass God's part in our work, in our life, and rely on our own. In this instance, Jesus is entering a village. <clears throat> Apparently, he is set on going to Jerusalem, and, and <clears throat> that people in the village tell him they don't want him in their village. So what do James and, James and John, the sons of thunder, do? Mind you, they are already involved, heavily involved in all three of these scenarios in this passage. They ask Jesus if he wants for, for them to call down fire and to consume the village. Mm, calling down fire from heaven, where have I heard that before? Oh uh, yes, First Kings chapter 18. Where Elijah has a competition with the prophets of Baal. You know, it's, you know we, we like to look at it as one of the... You know, uh, with a sense of humor about trying to vision this in our mind's eye as all of this is going on. It's more than one of the more well-known scenes in the Old Testament. You remember the, the sacrifices on, on Mount Carmel. Elijah challenges to a duel of gods. He mocks them when, they are, when there is no response to their sacrifice. <clears throat> then he floods his altar with water. He calls on God who sends fire down from heaven that I only... Excuse me. <clears throat> he calls fire down from heaven that not only consumes the altar, 
but the prophets of Baal. Now, <clears throat> maybe we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were trying to defend the Lord from being disrespected. There may be some question who Jesus was talking to when he turned and rebuked them. Was he rebuking the disciples or was he rebuking the people in the village? <clears throat> Still, there is some pride involved as they volunteer to take care of it with the Lord standing right there. Plus, they're putting themselves as the same level as Elijah. Calling fire from heaven hadn't been recorded since that incident on Mount Carmel. So despite mistake after mistake leading up to this event, the disciples made the connection that they were just like one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. You know, we like to give Pharisees grief for the things that they said and, and, and did. And, you know, we're, there are probably times when we see the Pharisees in our own lives. Probably a little more of them than what we want to admit. The parable Jesus tells in chapter, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 5, excuse me, 9 through 15, about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who were trusted, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. <coughs> Two men went up to the, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I get tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, staying off, far off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> no one has the right to claim they are worthy on their own merit in the sight of God. Still, four chapters later, <coughs> disciples are arguing again about who's the greatest. I really appreciate the quote by Thomas Brooks, and as far as I know, there's no relation from um, that Josh put in the call to worship from his book, Thomas Brooks' book's book, the, the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. A man's pride shall bring him low, for it sets God against him and angels against him, yea, even those that are proud as himself. It's very observable that whereas one drunkard loves another, one swearer loves another, and one thief loves another, and one unclean person loves another, yet one proud person cannot endure another, but seeks to undermine him, that he alone may bear the bell and carry the commendations, the praise, the promotion. Pride dies a hard death, and it is, a basically it is basically defeated by continual understanding of the truth of God working in you, mingled with the suffering and experiences that break our self-confidence. Maybe instead of asking ourselves, why does it seem like I go from one trial to 
the next, we should ask ourselves, what is the Lord trying to teach me? And realize maybe that we have trials in our life for a reason other than just living in a fallen world. When God saves us, there may be some sins that God immediately frees us from. But pride is not one of them. It is too ingrained in our sin nature. Christ is the ultimate example, as we've already read in Luke 22, where he talks about coming to serve and not to serve. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it sums it up nicely. Josh preached on this not too long ago. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient in the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, we admit, Father, it's, it, it, it's scary to pray for humility, uh, Father, because of what we may have to endure. We don't, we, don't want, we don't want to endure those things, Father, but Lord, it, it is for our benefit. It is for our sanctification. And Father, let it be, Father, if it brings us closer to you, and Lord, and helps us, Father, to become more like you. Father, we, we thank you for uh, this church and uh, Father and uh, Father, I just pray that you'll just uh, that when we that we be able to recognize, Father, when that pride seeps in to us, disguised as something else, Father, Lord, realizing you know Father, we have nothing to be proud about, Father, but all the praise and the glory goes to you. For Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.